0: Go to shopify.com slash income now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in.
1: Max Verstappen fends off Lando Norris for victory at Interlagos ahead of a tense duel between Fernando Alonso and Sergio Perez. This is the F1 Strategy Report. My name is Michael Laminato, and this is round 20 The Sao Paulo Grand Prix. McLaren warned the slower speed Interlagos circuit wouldn't suit its car, but as has fast become the norm, the more the team protests, the better the MCL60 turns out to be. Lando Norris was in sizzling form in Brazil. Only a sudden thunderstorm prevented him from taking pole on Friday, but pole and second on Sprint Saturday proved he was a genuine threat. He so nearly got what could have been a decisive pass done in the opening laps of the Grand Prix, but with the McLaren's tyre deg just too strong, he fell short, with Verstappen escaping to a slender but record-breaking victory. But it was Fernando Alonso's epic defence of third place ahead of the much faster Sergio Perez that stole the show, the pair swapping places twice on the last two laps for a photo finish in the Spaniard's favour. So was there any way for Lando Norris to win this race? To help answer that question after yet another record-breaking weekend, I'm joined by F1's foremost statistician, Sean Kelly.
2: Sean, how are you going? I am reveling in the fact that we have a day off at last <laughs> after three weeks on the road, a triple header. Uh, it just feels like the hits keep on coming every week, you know, race is done, Monday morning, next race. Do all that all week. Monday morning, next race. It's just relentless. And finally, got a couple of weeks to ourselves. Well, not even a couple of weeks, just a a few days before we have to dive in for Las Vegas.
1: Yes, they've taken an extra day out of that week off as well, haven't they, with Las Vegas, starting a day earlier. So, savour it.
2: Yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, it's not so bad when you've got... Two weeks in between. I mean, if it had been back-to-back, I would have been really feeling it this week, (laughs) Um, especially having been on a flight for 10
1: hours to Brazil and back. I think that's fair. Brazil, further than everyone expects from pretty much everywhere. It's almost like the Australia of the Americas in some respects, but it (laughs) does tend to deliver... Pretty good racing, maybe a little bit more reliably than Albert Park, dare I say, despite it being my home race.
2: Perhaps not a high bar to clear there, I'd say. No. Brazil's <laughs> no. particularly good in that
1: regard as well. Probably two really quite contrasting races that couldn't have picked a worse pair uh, to contrast for Albert Park's sake. Headline from this race was, well, Max Verstappen wins against Headline of virtually every race this season. But now holds the record for most wins in a season outright by percentage terms, having already broken his old record in number terms a couple of weeks ago. Passes Alberto Ascari's six from eight in 1952. So almost the entire history of the World Championship has been mm. broken now.
2: Yeah, but um, I don't think... Uh, Ascari didn't do the Swiss Grand Prix that year, did he? No, I don't think he did. So Because he was qualifying for the Indy 500. Mm-hmm. So um, if if you were to take that out of the equation, wouldn't that change his win percentage? Wouldn't that make his win percentage higher?
1: Well, I mean, I, what a better person to ask than you about this question, because my first answer was, is there any way that this is not the most successful season in Formula One history already? So please, the floor is yours.
2: Well, I, the, I, the World Championship was only uh, eight races in 1952, so I'd still... Strongly argue that this is the most successful season in history just because of the longevity of the season. We've got so many races. And you've got the sprints as well. And he keeps winning those. Um, So, um, yeah, to me, this is actually better than what Ascari did because Ascari didn't have to do it for such a prolonged period of time. Um, It's always... I mean, I said all season. I said eventually Red Bull will make a balls of it and they'll, they'll lose one. But I didn't think that they would literally lose one. You know, I thought uh, that that eventually a couple of, you know, there'll be a couple of times they drop the ball and somebody else comes in and wins a race. Um, And really, I mean, Singapore was a complete disaster for them. But in in one sense, it actually uh, underscored just what Red Bull are doing, just what Max Verstappen's doing. They had one weekend where they completely, completely ruined it for themselves. But that shows how brilliant they have been so long in this season that they don't make those mistakes. There's just one weekend where they, they got it wrong. And that to me, just, uh, it, just, it, 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 it just makes it more impressive, all the other wins that they've had this year. Shows you how difficult it actually is.
1: Yeah, it's a tremendous point to highlight because in a season as long as this, while it's easy to accumulate numbers like all-time wins in a season as Verstappen did last year and then again this year, it does highlight how hard it is to continue to operate at that level. I think it's taken for granted often because we say, well, Max is winning a lot because the car's very good. but And and we often use Sergio Perez as a counterpoint that he's struggled more this year and that is a valid one, even if we think he's in an unusually deep form trough, if you like, and can Only is occasionally performing, but the effort required to operate at that level. I mean, only compared to Ferrari and Mercedes, two extremely well-established teams with some very good drivers, can't get a handle on performing at at least even second or third best every weekend. Never mind being the fastest out there. So it is a really worthwhile thing to highlight.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Mercedes dropped anchor in the Brazilian Mm -hmm. Grand Prix, or sorry, the Sao Paulo Grand Prix, as we (laughs) call it, um, because they went they went backwards all day. But Ferrari didn't even, you know, in the case of one car, didn't even get to the start. You know, this is It, it is the usual Keystone Cops arrangement <laughs> from Ferrari again. Second time in the last four races that a car has not made to the start line from the Scuderia. What is going on there? I mean, again, you know, it, it's just things that, things that aren't Red Bull things. Yeah. They're not... You know, Red Bull don't start going backwards through the field during a Grand Prix and, and, and they do get both cars at the start of the race. So, you know, there's the basics. You could just say that Red Bull are making the fewest mistakes of anybody. It's not necessarily you could say it's not necessarily more than that do they just wait for everybody else to make a mess of it
1: yeah well, I mean that's perfectly valid way of winning in any case so a massive achievement for Max Verstappen how many more will he win and then of course we've got teams records to be broken potentially by the end of the year if Red Bull Racing wins the rest of them which you'd think is relatively high odds but let's look at this race in a little bit more detail uh, for the third round in a row Max Verstappen though he won obviously did face relatively serious threat in the form of Lando Norris this week McLaren driver was the only one really close to Verstappen's pace they both finished around half a minute or ahead of everyone else and there was only 8 seconds between them uh, this was set up by that red flag we might talk about that a little bit later it meant Lando Norris started the restart from second where he thinks he certainly had the pace to have started from had qualifying gone a little bit more smooth started with a fresh set of softs, really throwing everything at it, almost made the pass, only a couple of laps into the start, down the DRS zone into turn four, but didn't quite have the tyre life to keep up the challenge. It was only a relatively small difference over all three, since we said about eight seconds, the pace was very close. Do you think there was any way McLaren could have approached this race differently, given they essentially echoed Max Verstappen's strategy to have had a better chance of winning this one?
2: No, in actual fact, I mean, when that red flag came out, um, I actually thought that that was the best chance they had because obviously Norris made that lightning start taking advantage of the leclerc starting grid uh, and found himself second when the red flag came out. But there was, there was a crucial element to the restart and that was that Norris put on brand new C4 soft tyres for the restart, whereas Verstappen had scrubbed uh, C4s. So I thought, okay, this is McLaren going all in, probably taking their set, they a remaining set of the new Soft C four and betting it all bet, effectively betting it all on red. No pun intended. <laughs> um actually pun actually no, uh, pun intended. Here.
1: Uh, save it for next week, Sean. <laughs> yeah, well
2: yes, we've got to say the got to say the gambling <laughs> puns for Las Vegas. I mean. um, yeah. But yeah, but by, but by putting the new set on at that restart, they were basically saying, Let's go for it now. Let's try and get Verstappen into turn one. Because they knew from the previous day. Oh so well. Um, that Verstappen um, had beaten Norris into turn one uh, in the sprint. So they knew that it is possible to get the lead from second on the grid. So they probably, that was the thinking there. And I thought, well, that's, here we go. We should get, should get a good rumble down into turn one if Norris is on new tyres. But as it was, Verstappen absolutely nailed the restart. And um, he, he was briefly under threat there when Norris was in the DRS zone. But once, um, after Norris had had a go at him, uh, he then fell like 1.088 seconds behind. And it was at that point I thought, right, that's that done and dusted because he'll, he'll never touch him now because now he hasn't got DRS. So now Verstappen will start drawing off into the distance, which he duly did, which is a common trait of the 2023 Grand Prix season.
1: Yeah, it sort of sums up so much. And also we saw a, a glimpse of this, I suppose, the day before, as you, as you mentioned in the sprint. The three stints of this race... Well, more or less echoed performance trends we saw in the sprint. Fair enough. They're the same cars. Park Ferme means they're exactly the same setup. Pretty close, anyway, uh, between the sprint and the Grand Prix. It was essentially Norris being very close at the start of each stint and then fading a little bit more over the distance as he had worse tyre degradation. On a weekend in which the sprint format has been in the spotlight, this was our last of six this season, and there's a lot of talk that the format will be shaken up again next year in some way still to be decided. Do you think this precursor element by whereby we really learn quite a lot from the sprint, it's something Max Verstappen has said as a, a precursor for what's going to happen in the Grand Prix is something that should be considered when we're looking at potentially different formats?
2: I absolutely think that if you're going to persevere with this sprint idea, more should be done to make it different from the Grand Prix. I've said since it began that what I'd love to see is the fuel flow removed for the sprint format mm. because then you would have um, unlimited fuel flow. All right, you want to call it a sprint? Let's do a sprint. Let's put maximum amount of fuel in the car. But the, the, the trade-off here is how much are you willing to risk the life of the power unit with that extra power that you would have against Making a few, a few positions in the sprint against the you know having to change the change an extra power unit component later in the season, um, it's always a good idea to give the teams enough rope to hang themselves with because <laughs> that's that's when human error comes into it. And it is hu- it's human error that we actually want to see in Formula One. If we didn't want to see human error, we'd be watching Robo racing, where there is no human error. It's actually you want to see the human mistakes come into it. Um, and that, that to me, it's, it encourages something to, that they can miscalculate, except Ferrari, of course, who are actually quite good at doing it, even without our help. Uh, but putting them aside, um, that's what I would like to see done. And of course, there has been some speculation about changing the timetable, the schedule of the weekend, and maybe you know, do we put sprint qualifying on Friday and normal qualifying on the Saturday? Now, if you did that. What you could say is let's remove the fuel flow limit on Saturday only because then you've got a sprint race and the qualifying session for the Grand Prix and both of those sessions would be maximum power, right? Just just in those two sessions, you'd have maximum power. Um, So that would be really interesting. Um, But unfortunately, I don't think it's very uh, politically correct. I don't think it, it, (laughs) bearing in mind that Formula One is trying to be net zero for 2030. I don't think mm. it, it doesn't, it's not sending a good message about its, <laughs> its eco-friendly credentials by saying, we are basically guzzling all the fuel in the world in these power units on a Saturday. It's not really, it's not really the, the message they're trying to convey. But to me, to me, that's, that would be very interesting because then you'd have two distinctly different race events where you've got to conserve elements on the, in the Grand Prix format, but you actually just go hell for leather in a sprint.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's a good way to create a performance differentiation because I think that's certainly something that needs to be considered. Otherwise, you just have multiple race events with very similar performance envelopes, and not every race is going to be unpredictable enough uh, in other conditions to give you dramatically different results. And I think we saw that, for example, well, we've seen it a couple of times, nearly six times, in fact, this year. With only a few real outliers. Well, I was
2: going to say, of course, that I mean, the sprint, um, the 1-2 the, the in the sprint was the same as the 1-2 in the Grand Prix. So... Um, you know, and, and it was 53,000 away from being an identical top three because Perez was third in the sprint and was nearly third in the Grand Prix. So, I mean, that doesn't really speak well to the concept of the sprint adding any jeopardy to the Grand Prix format, does it? Because you could almost pick your top three based on the sprint.
1: Exactly right. And I think that's something, if we're talking about increasing the spectacle, okay, while more racing is better than more practice, at least from the spectator point of view, if it's the same outcome, it's gonna get old pretty fast. Particularly if we end up getting more sprints over coming years, even if we're still in a relatively limited trial. But
2: I, I will I will admit, I mean, I'm a purist. I didn't I never met a fan before twenty twenty one who said, Let's have sprint racing. That sounds great. Never met that was always it was always something that was a corporate thing. It was something that People in high office thought, "Let's let's do this. This sounds great." And I never met a fan who actually said, "Hey, I want sprint racing." Um, once it was implemented, I, I I find it hard to deny that it is objectively more entertaining than watching a free practice three. Um, but we do need we, we do need to make it more unique. There does need to be a more a, a better selling point than just simply being a rehearsal of the first element first segment of the race because um, that does become very predictable. And Formula One fans are very, very switched on with strategy and tires and so on. So, you know, you're not going to sell them a dummy and say, oh no, no, it will be completely different today. Like, no, they're not going <laughs> to buy that. They're going to know. We saw it yesterday. We know what's going to happen, so it needs to be more different.
1: Yeah, I think that's uh, a really great point, and hopefully, that's uh, something they're considering at least during the off season, and probably if this year is anything to go by, right up until the week of whatever the first sprint will be next year. So many months to think about it, I suppose, uh, if form is any guide. Let's leave that battle for the lead behind. Although I guess it's worth pointing out, this would be one of uh, the statistics I think I read in your Formula One column that Norris is now equal with Nick Heidfeld for most podiums without victory so we wait and see if he's going to be, move beyond that either from with more podiums or the win I suppose
2: well it, it should be it should be added though Alanna Norris has tied Heidfeld's record 13 podiums no Grand Prix wins but uh there were four drivers that went got to 15 podium finishes before winning their first race that was Patrick Depayet, uh, Jean-Alacy, Mika Hakkinen and Eddie Irvine all got to 15 podium finishes in their career before they won their first Grand Prix. So all is not lost for Norris. Um, <laughs> and we know he's knocking on the door of this thing. It's not like, I have to say, in, in the the great majority of Heidfeld's podium finishes, it, it, it usually felt like an opportunistic podium. Like, it wasn't like he lost a close battle for the win. It would be like, oh, he got third, you know, because there was other drivers dropped out. In Norris's case, he's pushing for the win. So you know it's coming. Um... Uh, so, you know, it's nearly there. We know he's got the talent. He just needs that one guy to have a day off. That's really it. it. Just Eventually, Verstappen has to have a day off, has to have a day where he makes a few mistakes and it doesn't all go quite as well. And then eventually, it'll be Norris's race.
1: Yeah, just lock his, uh, change the locks on his hotel room door. That might be the way to ensure that there's that drive. Well,
2: it, it, I was going to say, <laughs> I, I saw Bernie on the grid on Sunday. And I said, you know, if Bernie was still in charge, he would have he would have pushed Verstappen down the stairs in the, uh, the drivers' briefing or something, just to make just to just to liven it up a bit. Yeah. You know?
1: Well, sometimes you need a little bit of direct action. Indeed. So if someone's got to do it, someone's got to do it. But there are two more races. Two more races to say. Let's look at that battle for third that was the only difference in the top three, obviously, between the sprint and the Grand Prix. It went to Fernando Alonso on Sunday, and his battle with Sergio Perez for that place was one of the real highlights of this race. In fact, it lasted a good half of the Grand Prix at first strategically, and then in a real wheel-to-wheel battle in that final stint, uh, Alonso prevailed by five hundredths of a second. Remarkable result considering the car mismatch, even if Aston Martin was more improved this weekend. And there were several moments... That this battle hinged on, Alonso getting ahead of Lewis Hamilton is something he pointed out in that first stint, giving him the clear air, whereas Perez was stuck behind at least one Mercedes for around about the first half of the race, including through to that second stint, and he complained to Red Bull over Team Radio that they just followed Mercedes' lead, fell into the undercut, got stuck behind Lewis Hamilton for an extra lap or two, uh, and had a very long middle stint as a result, rather than running their own race. Do you think Red Bull made Perez's life a little bit harder than it needed to be here in pursuit of the podium?
2: Well, I mean, Hamilton, uh, in terms of Mercedes' strategy, um, Hamilton pitted lap eighteen, Perez pitted lap twenty, Alonso pitted lap twenty-five. So when Alonso came out, um, he was on significantly less worn medium tires in that mi- in that middle stint. Um, but with having said that, you know, just a, a cursory glance um, at um, the, the the curve. You know, the the gap analysis curve shows that Perez had a faster stint in that middle part of the race uh, than did Alonso. So um, Perez did a pretty good job, um, even if uh, he felt like Red Bull were concentrating on somebody else. Um, You know, I I thought Perez was pretty relentless. I thought it was one of his better drives of the season. Um, And especially, we should say that Alonso's, Alonso's final stint was on brand new softs. And Perez had scrubs, scrubs off. He didn't have any softs, new softs remaining, and he was still pulling in that gap. But ultimately, there are some there are some things in Formula One where people such as ourselves who deal with statistics and strategy, basically, we take a seat, don't we? We sit down and say, look. <laughs> the car the back there's a battles on the racetrack you don't need numbers to tell the story here this is just old school racing um and i must say i i mean it's something i've said before and long believed alonso is just a genius when it comes to understanding how to run a race he's so good at understanding how to defend a position and being as stubborn as hell in terms of trying to get past him in a car. I mean, there's no way he should have been on the podium in that race. I mean, Perez should have eaten him up. And he did. I mean, Perez got, got third place. It was in the bag. Even Alonso thought it was over. And yet, he got it back from him. And there's there's no way he should have been no way should have been a battle for third place. And Alonso was so good. It was one of those absolute top draw drives, like um, Hungary 2021, when he kept Lewis Hamilton behind him in the latter part of the race and effectively allowed his teammate Esteban Ocon to win the race. Of course, they're close personal chums, uh, Alonso and Ocon. Uh, They've turned turned crashing into each other into an annually occurring event on Saturdays in Sao Paulo, but we digress. Um, But, I mean, uh, uh, to me, there is no finer racer than Alonso. Maybe Verstappen and Hamilton are quicker over one lap, but if you were to give Alonso track position, he is the biggest pain in the ass to get past. And I mean that in the most complimentary way possible. He is an absolute genius. The fact that he, he could do that stuff. And he's 42. Mm. I mean, he should be completely washed up over the hill. Drivers uh, drivers over the age of 40 are washed up, statistically speaking. They, they are usually past it. And Alonso looks... I mean he looks exactly like the Alonso of 20 years ago and it is astonishing Um, yeah I mean that's certainly one of the one of the drives of the season and it wasn't even for first or second that Alonso was able to hold that and he said himself what set it up of course was the key key overtaking move on Lewis Hamilton on that restart that was the big move that gave him a bit of clear air uh, and allowed him uh, that set up the podium finish by, by having the tenacity to go past Hamilton on that restart
1: Yeah, exactly. And it gave him the opportunity to manage his own race. A fair bit behind the leading two, but sufficiently ahead of the battlers behind him. And what I think is really interesting about Fernando Alonso's race, or what I think is really telling about him being able to deliver that outcome, is that he could see from the beginning he was going to need a lot of race management to make sure he was in the best possible position to defend against Sergio Perez in that final stint. There was this really great long race of management waiting for that last battle. It's rare, I guess, in drivers, there are only a handful I can think of who can see a race in that broad picture way from the very beginning of the race. This wasn't a decision he made in the last stint or even at the last stop where he could see Perez in his mirrors pitting before him and asking the team what the strategy needed to be. It was a race-long mission to defeat Perez by five hundredths of a second. Yeah, I mean, a (laughs) lot...
2: If ever if ever a driver epitomised the concept of 4D chess, <laughs> it's got to be Fernando Alonso, isn't it? He is such. I mean, he's such a tricky customer. He is just brilliant, and um, yeah, it's one of the feel-good stories. And I, and I loved. I loved by the way. I love seeing the embrace between the two of them in 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 the bullpen interviews afterwards. You know, that just goes to show through all this endless data, GPS, strategy, stats, all the stuff that we spout. You know. When it comes down to it, they're, they're all just grown-up kart racers who want to go wheel-to-wheel wheel with each other. That's what they live for. And they had a mass, they had an amazing battle, you know, in the, in the, in sort of the spirit of Villeneuve and Arnoux. And uh, we were privileged to see it. And actually, I, where I was positioned, um, I was literally above the start line. The start line was directly beneath me. So I saw with my own eyes the finish. And I must say, I, I, when I saw it with my own eyes, I clearly saw that, that Alonso had got third. I was like, oh, I just got it. And um, my boss was standing next to me, thought uh, Perez had got it. <laughs> uh, the reason is because he thought the start line was the finish line. But of course, the finish line is a little bit further back. Mm-hmm. It's where the pit in, is level with pit in, as it is with all racetracks. So the finish line is a little bit before where the start line is. And, um, those of you with long memories will remember that at Hereth in 86, Senna beat Mansell by 16 thousandths of a second. And they were, they were, they were side by side going across the finish. But the finish line was in a different place to the timing beam. And Mansell thought he'd won the race. And it was only afterwards he found out that he hadn't because the, the, the timing beam actually. The finish line was in a different place to the way the timing beam was, and he thought he'd won when, in fact, Senna had won. So we had a little bit of déjà vu from the uh, from memory lane, Formula One <laughs> F1, F Formula One turbocharged history repeated itself <laughs> on Sunday when we had two people standing there watching the end of a race, and both of us thought that the other guy had finished third.
1: Yeah, look, it was very fine margins, you know. He and I could only just see it really, and I do like we got that photo finish photo literally from Formula One at the end of it. Indeed, um, two teams. That were not involved in this battle really at all, other than as bystanders, I suppose. Cars to pass were Mercedes and Ferrari. Leclerc didn't even enter this way. He entered the race. He didn't really take the start. He retired on the formation lap. Not the first time he's done that either, unfortunately for him. George Russell retired with an overheating engine. Carlos Sainz was restricted by temperatures. And Hamilton's car was... Too high, too much wing, not very fast. To come back to that sprint discussion, not necessarily about format changes, but how much can we attribute this to that idea that one practice session isn't always enough to get all your sums right? Admittedly, a lot of teams did, but two pretty big teams appear to have got it pretty wrong and, and paid a pretty high price over two days of racing. It is interesting to
2: me that Charles Leclerc has done his best work of the season, on sprint weekends apart from Mexico, all of his front rows this year and all of his podium finishes had come in the sprint format. And, um, I was talking to what Safnar about this the other day, um, uh, because I was saying, look, you know, now you're at Liberty to discuss on stage all of your teams because you're not an Alpine guy anymore, strictly speaking. Um, you know, it are, is that, is that a media construct or is it genuinely a case where some teams are actually able to guess it correctly out of the box? and he said no no that that is a thing that is definitely a thing where they they arrive at the track and they've got it right with you know they are more likely to get it right without needing the practice sessions to get it right um, and it seems in the case of leclerc and ferrari they are more at home with that concept than they are uh, on a regular se- a regular weekend um, of course <laughs> Charles Leclerc being the real-life incarnation of Wiley e. Coyote from the Roadrunner <laughs> cartoons, the anvil dropped out of the sky and landed on him, barely th- forty-five seconds away from the formation lap. Um, and it, what's quite amusing is uh, a lot of our staff were up on the veranda watching the formation lap, and I went to take a picture of them uh, watching the formation lap. So I was taking a picture of them like from from behind them, and um, when I when I actually clicked the image. One of them turned round and was pointing, went, Leclerc's just crashed. And so literally the image I got was him going, one of them turning around and going, oh, with his mouth open. Leclerc's just gone off on the formation lap. So that was how I first discovered because I I wasn't watching the cars go around. I was watching everybody watching watching them, Mm -hmm. as it were. So the first time I knew Leclerc had gone off was when somebody turned around and shouted it at me. (laughs)
1: Look, everyone's got to find out one way or another, I suppose. Just a couple more before we wrap this one up. Esteban Ocon, the only driver to try a three-stop strategy on this high-degradation circuit. He lost out to Yuki Tsunoda and his teammate by the end of the race, but did score a point for 10th place. Are you surprised more teams didn't try the three-stop given how high degradation was and how much better the softer tyres were than the harder ones here?
2: Well, Pirelli offered it as a, as a suggested strategy. I mean, they, they came into it saying, OK, so the two-stopper is probably plan A. And we're you know probably starting on the red, the red C4, uh, middle stint on the medium, end on the red C4. Now, as it turned out this weekend, R- Pirelli got it almost exactly right. The, the windows that they suggested and the compounds that they had suggested. So you start on the C4, move to C3, end on C4. Pretty much everybody did it. Um, So that's not always the case. I mean, Pirelli actually do possible race strategies every race. We get an email in the press, in the media saying, here's here's what we're thinking is the best idea. Um, and sometimes it's completely wrong because you know track condition can change, circumstances can change. Because obviously, you know, if a safety car or a virtual safety car comes out, you can just bin this off and say, right, we're, now we're now we're just improvising what our strategy is. But in this case, Pirelli were almost exactly right. Um, w- one of the alternate plans was a three stopper with starting on the soft, again second stint on the medium, and then um, two more sets of C4 tyres to get to the end and that is exactly what Ocon did so uh, so Ocon effectively ran the plan b strategy if you will um so am I surprised more people didn't try it well I mean not really I must say I I I did I did come into it feeling strongly it was going to be a two-stopper and um you know I don't I I I confess full full confession to the listeners here I haven't actually Analyzed Esteban Ocon's tire data because he only finished tenth in the race. Um, I was obviously I, in my job. I'm, I'm more preoccupied with what's happening right at the front. Um, but it, you know, given Alpine's situation right now, it, it, you know, it's not not the worst idea in the world to try something a little bit different. You never know, you might gain a few positions. I don't think I don't think Alpine are out there to score one point per race. That's what they got for the second race in a row. So it's something. But, um, you know, if they rolled the dice on it and it turned out that the deg was higher than everyone had anticipated, maybe they would have made up a couple of positions. Um, it should also be said, of course, that Ocon, uh, for his final stop, had an extra set um, of new tyres remaining. So he was able to go on to that at the end. So he was one of the, what, four drivers on the track um, who ran the final stint on a brand new set of tyres. So that he probably, they probably felt like, yeah, well, we may as well factor these in you know why wouldn't why would we leave an extra set left over might as well go for it
1: and as a final point two drivers who spent almost the entire race a lap down pretty much from the second lap of the race daniel ricardo and oscar piastri were involved in that first lap crash pitted at the end of the first lap for repairs race was red flagged on the second lap but they lost that second lap they didn't complete it And there was no facility in the rules heading back to the grid for them to resume the lead lap. I guess there's two questions to this. What are the odds of there not being another safety car after Carnage on that first lap? And is that a gap in the rules that we can have cars resuming after a red flag a lap down rather than, as we see in a safety car, having that opportunity to get everyone back on the lead lap and have a full race, I guess, for want of a better phrase?
2: Yeah, it was uh, unfortunate in their case, but... It's the second year in a row where we've had some shenanigans involving drivers being a lap down and, and suffering from safety car rules. Last year's race, Yuki Tsunoda was a lap down and there was an, there was an anomaly in the FIA um, timing systems. So he was told he could not unlap himself during the final safety car period. Um, I can't remember if there was any other cars that were a lap down, but he specifically was told he couldn't. So that meant um, this is that final restart happened with like... Five or six laps to go in last year's race at Sao Paulo, and everybody was on the lead lap except him, who was a lap behind. Just thinking, what? Well, well, what do you want me to do in this situation? You know, I'm basically racing myself. Um, so that was a that was a, a technical anomaly. Um, I don't know if there's if, if there's something that can be amended in the regulations with that. Uh, I confess again because it was at the back, I was more preoccupied with what was happening up at the front. Um, but it does. Yeah, I mean it does make for a bit of a wasted afternoon, doesn't it, when you're you're making a restart on lap three and you're already a lap down, effectively, so uh yeah, not great for them. But but as you say, you know, who was to who would have put money that there'd be no other safety car at the race and we other than that carnage, we'd have nothing else of any consequence in terms of uh, an accident. You know? Win some, lose some. You know, there's been times in the past where I mean, I can think of Alonso. I think Alonso had two flat tires at Baku in 2017, was it? And he came back and finished in the mm-hmm. points. So you know, some days it goes really well, and then other days it just doesn't. So you know, that's life. But they were very—I mean, they were unlucky. Obviously, they're kind of caught in other people's accidents. You know, I mean, Ricardo was lucky in that the the tire clattered the rear wing and not the cockpit. I, I, I read that he said he he ducked, he mm-hmm. physically ducked in the car when he saw it coming towards him. Now, of course, he might have been okay with the halo, but you don't like to put that to the test. So I'm glad that uh, there was no injuries caused by debris.
1: Mm, yes, uh, it is. Uh, I feel, feel like I've been saying this everywhere. This is one of Ricardo, Well, this is his worst circuit in his career. So, of course, if a tyre was going to fly into the air and break someone's rear wing, it was probably going to be his, unfortunately. And if there was not going to be a safety car in a race on which he was not on the lead lap... Probably Brazil as well. And we wait to find out if that bad luck rubs off on Oscar Piastri. His compatriot too. He was caught out by the same situation. Unfortunate races for them. Pretty good race for Max Verstappen and Lando Norris. Very good race by Fernando Alonso. Only two more to go. Will they be as exciting as this? Well, we'll wait and see. Sean, thanks so much for joining me. Pleasure to be on again. The Sao Paulo Grand Prix was a tantalising glimpse at what could be in 2024. McLaren's gains continue to impress right to the end of the year, and this same trajectory will surely have the team contending to at least pinch wins next year. And while there's more doubt about Aston Martin's form, there's no question about what Fernando Alonso could bring in a race-winning car. Let's hope both teams can deliver next season. Thanks very much to Sean Kelly for joining me to debrief the Sao Paulo Grand Prix. You can subscribe to The Strategy Report wherever you get your favourite podcasts, and don't forget to leave us a rating and a review to help spread the word. You can also find us on social media. The Strategy Report is a beer Mogul podcast on the Evergreen Podcast Network. Special thanks to Ben Loke from Bloke Designs for the show artwork, and our theme music is by Simon Hosford. My name's Michael Laminato, and I'll be back in a couple of weeks for the Las Vegas Grand Prix.